Welcome to Many Roads to Hear, bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Deegan Larkin, and today we bring you the first episode in our new series, The Immigrant Story Live. Our parent organization, The Immigrant Story, began hosting live storytelling events in 2019 in the Portland, Oregon area. Center stage at these events are immigrants and refugees from around the world who gather to share their stories and music in front of a live audience. These themed evenings reflect on topics like survival, identity, and the realities of being undocumented. This new series will bring you selections from these events, pairings of stories with similar themes or moods or pieces that simply complement each other. Today, you'll hear three different stories from the Immigrant Story Live archives about surprising yourself. From the surprises that excite you, that reveal hidden talents or present unexpected opportunities, to the surprises that disappoint, that steer you off course, betray what you thought you'd known about yourself, and land you somewhere unexpected. We start with Mariamo Abdullahi, who told the story of a chance pursuit at the Immigrant Stories Live storytelling event during the Beaverton, Oregon Welcoming Week in September of 2019. Mariamo was born in the Central African Republic during a time of turmoil and violence. Her family spent years in a refugee camp before moving to the U.S. through a refugee resettlement program. Mariamo was in the seventh grade when she arrived in the U.S., knowing no English. She worked hard, really hard, learning a new language and maintaining excellent grades. Then, five years later, she found herself facing an unexpected challenge. I accidentally signed up to apply to be a Rose Festival princess. It was February 2018, my senior year at Benson High School. Every Friday, we have Black Student Union meeting in my dental teacher classroom. This Friday, when I walk into the classroom, girls were signing up for something called the Rose Festival Princess. I did not know what Rose Festival is. All I knew, girls were competing to become princesses. In my country, we have prince and princesses, but prince and princesses are born into loyalty. They do not compete for it. <laughs> then I went about doing my school thing that day. I did not think too much about this Rose Festival my teachers told us about. A few days later, I got an email talking about Rose Festival Princess application process. I was like, what is this all about? And then I realized what I had signed up for that day was one of the first steps toward enrollment in the competition of the Rose Festival. After reading the email, I decided Rose Festival was out of reach for me. Look at me. I am African, black, Muslim with a hijab. I was born in a refugee camp in Central Africa Republic. My three brothers and two sisters were born there too. My life was pretty simple there. Every morning, I wake up at 4 a.m., pray. After prayer, I read the Quran for three hours. Then I went to French school. I learned math, reading, and writing. After school, I read the Quran again. Then me and my friends, we finally went and collect firewood for our Quran night. 
In 2012, I moved to America. I started eighth grade. I did not know any English, and I was putting classes with kids who have been speaking English their whole life. No one could speak my language. No one could help me. I was bullied, and when I talked to the principal, she did nothing. In Africa, I was told there wasn't racism in America, <laughs> and that it was land of free. But in reality, it seems like all、oh, America was afraid of me. I was called a terrorist, and I was told I was hiding a weapon under my hijab. I thought I had left violence, but this was a new kind of violence. I thought the judges would look at me and just see Muslim and a black woman, not a rose festival princess. What am I thinking? I went to my teacher and I told her I could not submit my application, but she was relentless. She had more faith in me than I had in myself. I came up with million excuses. At home, my parents are leaving for Africa for three months, leaving me and my older brother in charge of our siblings. I was practically doing a mother's job, cooking and cleaning and taking care of the schoolwork. My teacher told me to think about it, and I would be good at it. I should do the application, she said. And if I still did not want to do it, that would be okay. I had great support from great many teachers who believed in me. After talking to my teacher, I decided to go for it. My advice principal wrote my letter of recommendation. My dental teacher and BSU advisor, Ms. Jamison, helped me with my essay and application. She took me to wherever I needed to go, and helped me understood what I needed to do. After talking to my teacher, I decided to go for it. Thanks to all this help, I submitted my application on time and made it to the first round of the competition. The first round of the competition was held at Providence Medical Center. Where all the selected applicants were asked to come and present two speech and answer questions in front of a panel of six judges. This was the first time I saw all these girls from all over Portland Public School, all elegant, calm, and beautiful. But then I began to listen to their conversation. It seems like all of them have been preparing for this moment their entire life. They knew everything about Rose Festival, and me, I don't know what is this all about. And I just start preparing last month. By the time I was called up to the stage to deliver my speech and answer questions, I was trembling with fear. I was so nervous I could not remember what happened in that room. But I must have done really well because I got an email saying I made it to the next round. For this round, I needed to deliver my speech to the entire school body, the student, the teachers, and the staff, and then the princess would be voted by the students. I had two weeks to prepare. I was terrified that I wasn't going to be ready, and then my friend told me she had overheard someone saying, "I would not become a Rose Festival princess because my English wasn't good enough." At first, I pretended I did not hear the story. But I could not stop thinking about it. I was frustrated with people telling immigrant and refugee that they cannot succeed. What did this person know about me? Yes, they knew I was an immigrant, 
but did they know my GPA was much better than the GPA required for a Rose Festival princess? Or that I have over 100 hours of community service when the Rose Festival princess needed only 20? After hearing that, I became determined not to give up. I had to be a good role model for my siblings and the ESL student. I told myself I was going to do this and I was going to do my best. I decided to practice really hard for this speech and give the best one I could. I will practice on the trimet while you're cooking and cleaning at home. I will practice in front of my teachers by asking them to listen to my speech. Even in front of my classmates, I practice. I remember stopping the security guards during school hours and asking them to listen to my speech. So I had more practice. <laughs> my favorite one was practicing before and after I did my prayers. As a Muslim, I pray five times a day. That was really helpful, and I am grateful I have that in my life. The night, the night before the speech, my parents were still not back home from Africa. I talked to my older brother. He told me, just go and do it. And he added, they're not going to kill you or eat you. <laughs> just go and do it. My parents called me at 2 a.m. from Africa. They told me to go out there and do my best. And if I did not win, that would be okay too, because either it's meant to be or not. They told me to put my trust in God, and I did what they say. In the morning, I went to school with my head held up high, even though I felt rotten inside. <laughs> I did not eat that day at all, because I thought I was going to vomit. The entire school was there, about 2,000 people. Before I walked up to the podium, my vice principal told me to take a big deep breath. I took a deep breath and started my speech. I had one week between the speech and the announcement when the Rose Festival people came back to announce the winner. The auditorium was full. Everyone was dressed up. The previous year princes were there too as well. All the contestants were called up to the stage. It was time to announce the 2018 Rose Festival Princess from Benson High School. The announcer opened the envelope and said, the 2018 Rose Festival Princess is Mariamu Abdullahi. I was in shock. I was the 2018 Rose Festival Princess from Benson High School. People came and hugged me. I got flowers from our school principal. People were taking pictures with me. The media was there too. I couldn't even breathe. I remember my sister coming to me and telling me, please take a deep breath before you faint. <laughs> I remember that moment as if it was yesterday. Sometimes I still cannot believe that I was the 2018 Rose Festival Princess from Benson High School. And end of the school year, I graduated with 4.0 GPA. <laughs> this is America. I truly believe if you want to be a princess, you can be. <laughs> if you want to be elected to Congress, you can do that too. 
as long as you believe in yourself. For me, what I truly believe in and working toward is to become a doctor. And that's the dream I am working on right now. Alhamdulillah, and thank you everyone so much. It has been three years since Mariamo first took the stage that night, and she has never strayed from her dream of joining the medical field. Mariamo now lives in Des Moines, Iowa, with her husband, where she is studying nursing at Mercy College of Health Sciences. Our next story is from Hussein Albiati, told that same night at the 2019 Beaverton Welcoming Week. Like Mariamo, Hussein grew up in a refugee camp. He was born in Iraq during the first Gulf War, and his family sought safety in a Saudi Arabian refugee camp. Like most refugees living in the camp, Hussein's family was eager to leave. But transfers out were few and far between. Hussein's father had to get creative to find a way out for his family, using his artistic abilities in unexpected ways to move them to the top of the queue. Hussein grew up in awe of his father, determined to one day become a successful artist just like him. When he was old enough to pursue his dream full force, Hussein was surprised to discover that, like his father, his pathway through the art world was winding and unpredictable. When I was just seven years old, my father and I would walk around this desert that was so hot, it was so humid. I'm sweaty just thinking about it right now. It was a type of desert that no one can really survive in. And to look back at it today, I'm surprised that some people still survive like my family. Walking around this refugee camp, for as far as my eyes can see, there was nothing but tents. But this was a valuable resource. You see, my father was a painter, an artist, a poet, probably one of the coolest people I ever met. And I got the opportunity to hang out with him when I was just little. So he would go around and pick up these scraps of tents and he would bring them back to our own refugee, refugee tent. And he churned these things overnight from scraps of tent to the most beautiful paintings you'd ever seen. At one point, he made his own oil paint. I don't even know how you do that. And at one point, there was these vicious, sort of hard soldiers that would come into our tents to search for guns, to search for weapons, as if we were gonna take over the Saudi Arabian government. My father, though, greeted them with compassion, greeted them with love. He brought them tea and cookies that my mom would whip up in that little hole that we called the kitchen. They were floored, blown away by my father's art that he had just kind of pasted around a refugee tent. Mind you, this is 10 by 10. It's not that big. Also, I had six siblings. 
And my mom and dad, there's nine people in this 10 by 10 tent. This time, though, was my childhood. This is where I grew up, running around barefoot, dusty feet, running around trying to play marbles with my brothers, also stuffing plastic bags into other plastic bags to make a ball so we can play some soccer. Though others would perceive this time as horrible, to me, this was my childhood. But my dad made the best of it. He would weave stories and tell me about his art, why he would choose a specific color, what kind of emotion he was trying to relay. Some of them were prolific. Some of them were political. Some of them were simply so emotional that I would wake up at three, four, five in the morning and I would hear him weep as he would pour his heart, his soreness, his frustration, his loss, and wove them into those paintings. The painting screamed, look at me. And that they did. See, my father attracted the guy that was running the whole refugee camp after these soldiers saw my dad's paintings. Word got out. There's a phenomenal artist here, and we should hire him to paint us, paint our families, our kids. They were taking advantage of him because he would paint for practically free. And that's when you know you love something. He would do it in hopes that he would get some connections that can help us get out of this refugee camp. You see, once every six months or so, they would post these names on this, on this chart right outside the refugee camp. And if your name was on there, you might get lucky to have an interview with the immigration offices that would help you get out of that refugee camp. See, the 1990 Gulf War affected a lot of people. And it affected my family in a way that the only way out was through my father's art. The guy who ran this whole refugee camp shows up one day with about six Hummers. We were like, oh my God, they're about to take our daddy. It's a wrap. There's no more paintings, no more love. As a matter of fact, it was quite the opposite. He hired my dad to do a painting of him and his whole family. And this guy had a pretty huge family, like 15 people in this painting. It was a 10 by 10. He brought him the canvas, the oil paints, and all the food we can handle. You see, before that, though, this is why your connections matter. Before that, we ate more tuna than probably everybody in here combined. It was ridiculous. When you live in a refugee camp, you just eat what you get. This was an interesting time. So when this guy hires my father, my father had a rule. He said, look, man, I'll stay here and paint for you. I'll paint galleries for you. But you got to help my family get out of here. I would say in about six months or so, we were on a jumbo jet. Has anybody seen one of those? Uh... Huge, to say the least. I'm sitting there still trying to figure out how this thing was in the air. <laughs> Full of about 200 people. I was like, could we get some people off? This might be too heavy. I don't know. This was an amazing time in my life. Because here we are. We're on a plane headed to an unknown destination. For me, it was. My father called it Portland, Oregon. See, they even gave my father the opportunity to go to Florida. That would have been nice. Nice beach. Come on, pops. Help us out. 
They told him, your art will thrive there. We promise. Like, this is the best place for you. But he's too humble. He said, I don't want my art to thrive anywhere. I want my kids to thrive. And so we got lucky. We got to come to Portland, Oregon. I grew up in Beaverton, man. I used to go to the Beaverton City Library when it wasn't here. And it wasn't this nice. You know what I mean? So we got to grow up here, and from that, it was, the, it was 1994. It was June 1994. Mind you, this is the, the epic era of, of hip-hop culture. MTV, saggy pants, FUBU. I don't know if you guys know what FUBU is. It's a clothing line that I fell in love with. Because I saw self-expression through the television. I saw self-expression through art. You see... I grew up drawing and painting too. And like my father, I watched him paint, he would watch me draw. And to many people, my father's art was art. It was amazing. But to him, it was simply therapy. It was for him, the canvas listened to his emotions. This is the type of art that for me, I can only compare to phenomenal artists like Picasso. You see, if you read about Picasso and what he painted during the war, that was some of his best work. So for me, I got to grow up with my version of a Picasso. How do I live up to that? Well, you do stuff like promise him like you're going to be an architect. Woo! That's a tough promise to keep. Because in seventh grade, my ESL teacher here in America told me that, eh, you should try something else. Might be a little tough for you. Hmm. Do you know what kind of soccer balls I made when I was growing up? You don't know. And so I took that to heart. And by the time I got to eighth grade, I had an even better ESL teacher who actually provoked and helped me come out of the program so that I can catch up with my peers. Thank God the seventh grade teacher was let go. So now I have a future planned to become an architect. I didn't want to just become an architect, though. I had too big of an ego growing up in America. I wanted to be the best architect in all of the land. Ridiculous. So I get to Portland State University, and I do about a year of the most ridiculous hard study I've ever done in my life. And in that year... I studied everything from architecture to physics. Oh my God, physics. And then I get this letter, because you have to apply to get in a program. I get this letter, and it says, Hussein, good try. Try again next year. Have a good one. How many of us here have failed at something? Yeah, so I see somebody waving both their hands. Like they just don't care, you know? So I took that, and I said I could do two things. I can go and make more euros at the Saturday market, because that's where I was working. Or I can crumble this up and go back to that teacher and ask, what can I do to be better? Because you see, 
when my father and mother was constantly getting rejected by these immigration uh, offices that they couldn't come to a different country, that they couldn't get out of that refugee camp, did they give up? That teacher that told me that, uh, maybe it's going to be difficult for you. Am I going to prove her right? These were the stories that kept weaving through my mind. I'm like, no, I'm a son of a Picasso. This can't happen. They don't know my potential. So I went back to the drawing board, retook those classes, worked day and night, quit mostly everything, but I started a little screen printing operation on the side, just a little hustle to keep paying my bills and things like that. It was in the basement of a barber shop, to be honest with you. So as I got through school and applied again, this time I got another letter who's saying, good try, but you're still not good enough. Woo, that's crushing. I gotta try yet again. Luckily that year they offered a summer course. And if you were just good enough, might be able to put you in. And out of 20 students, they're only gonna take about 10. So I had a summer to prove myself. I don't think I saw anybody else but my hands for the rest of that summer because there was no way, there was no way I wasn't gonna get into this program. And I finally got that letter. This one I didn't crumble, I framed it. <laughs> and put it up, I was proud of myself. And I was proud to tell my dad that I'm going to fulfill something remarkable as a thank you for the tremendous amount of hard work that you had to go through to raise me, to bring me here, through all the cultural differences and the endless stories that you've heard earlier. I'm very fortunate. I was able to get through that architecture program, and I worked day and night, man. Underneath my desk, I had a nice little bed. There was times where I had to ride the max. There was no way I'm riding the max at three in the morning. That's not gonna happen. So we would literally stay in these classes and work day and night to prove that we were good enough to become architects. And after I got my degree, not only was I happy, but I know I made someone else even happier. My mom, my dad, and made my brothers proud for pouring all that money and help, and hey man, I'm late on rent, I'm short, I'm this. So when it all comes down to it, this little screen printing operation though lingered. And when I got out, it was 2010, who remembers that time? Horrible timing. It was the worst recession. Nobody was hiring. Though I applied hundreds of jobs, got rejected by most all of them. This little screen printing operation though kept hovering, kept growing. And I turned customers to clients and clients into friends. And whether it be people from our friends at Nike or whether it be a school organization, everybody needed a t-shirt. I figured maybe this is my canvas. Maybe this is the canvas that I've been waiting for to share my story, to empower others. 
and to take architecture to a whole new level, which to design my life and how I really can make it powerful. Once I started the printery in 2011, I knew that there was no looking back. And the printery is a small business. But at the end of the day, four years later, five years later, we just kept breaking these little, hey, are you sure you want to do this business? You know how most businesses fail within the first five years. You know those statistics that people throw at you to kind of scare you because they want to put what they can't get through onto you. Man, I shattered those things. We're eight years in business. And we started this program called Refutees. And really, Refutees is about giving back to our people, connecting all of us, sharing our stories through these T-shirts. I thought, again, this is the canvas that goes beyond those refugee tents. So now, pulling it full circle, we work with Catholic Charities and ERCO on a monthly basis to donate and give back. I made it my life's mission and now invited my wife to join me and make it her mission to help give back to our community. One of the most important things that my father taught me before he passed was not the, just the logical, the knowledge that you gain. You see, when he passed, everything that he was trying to teach me truly came to fruition in the feelings, the heart. And this is where I carry my father today. I carry him through my heart. I carry him through my artwork. And I carry him through the story that I just wove to all of you. I'm Hussein Albiati. Thank you so much. While Hussein no longer owns the printery, he continues to empower the refugee community through his work as a speaker, author, and entrepreneur. In 2020, he wrote the best-selling book, Art of Resilience, The Refugee's State of Mind. Hussein now lives in Arizona with his wife, where he runs and operates Rising Authors, a coaching business that helps authors of color expand their stories and build their audiences. In our final story, we'll hear from Bernal Cruz, who took the stage just one year after Mariamo and Hussein at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. The event, Dreams Deferred Live, was streamed for a virtual audience and featured stories from the undocumented community. In the muted halls of the St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Beaverton, Oregon, Bernal recounted his childhood in Guatemala during its 36-year civil war. When Bernal was 13, his family sought asylum in the U.S. after his father, a military officer, was asked to work for an intelligence team that was using torture techniques. Bernal ached for his life back in Guatemala, dreaming of the day he'd reunite with his extended family and return to the comforts of his childhood home. It would be 15 years until Bernal finally found his way back to Guatemala. And many trips after that when he discovered that what he was truly longing for looked nothing like he had expected. We never made plans on Sunday when I was a child. That's because there wasn't really only one thing to do, and that was Sunday lunch at my grandmother's house. My dad's mom and the matriarch of her family. 
She lived in a small corner house in Guatemala City, and in the afternoons, the door was always left open as relatives would come and go, adding to the sounds of the buses and the traffic just steps beyond her door. Lunch was a production, and it was predictable. It was always, almost always the same thing, chicken soup, and it would be served shortly after my dad and his brother started having cocktails casually, whiskey con coca. Inevitably, one of my tios at some point would scream, hey, the kids are drinking the mixers. And that was our cue to go outside and go play. But I learned recently that it wasn't just us kids who were forbidden from drinking the Coke. My mom would sometimes be offered a cocktail, and if she declined but asked instead for a sip of Coke, she would get that look from one of my tios. At age 13, when I moved to the U.S., I knew that I would miss having lunch at my grandma's house. It's not like we talked about it. My parents never asked, hey, what do you think you'll miss? I think they thought the sooner I accept that I'm going to be living somewhere else, the better off we would all be. But I knew it. I knew I'd be missing my grandmother and my cousins. I knew I would miss my friends, my schoolmates, who I met when I was like five or six years old, and we all went through the same process and through the same grades together. And I also knew that I'd be missing out on having an adolescence in Guatemala. And in retrospect, that was probably a really good idea, but man, I just did not want to miss out. We made a decision as a family to rent out our home. And one of the things we did is we built a room upstairs on the roof, on the terrace, to keep the things that we really couldn't do without. So memories and documents, important pictures, and for me, important toys. I decided I actually I would place my favorite stuffed animal facing the door so that when I came back one day, I would open the door and find my stuffed animal exactly where I placed them. And I mean, it might seem silly now, but I think that was a really nice gesture that my 13-year-old self had. Without the foresight, of course, that one day at 28 years old, things would play out exactly like that. I would go upstairs, I would open the door, And there, under all the dust, would be Benji looking right at me, just the way I had planned it. But back to the storage room. Once all the memories and the toys were placed securely, we went to sleep for a few hours. The next morning, while it was still dark out, the neighbor came over, and he would be driving us to the airport that day. And what would be an otherwise unceremonious goodbye, that is, except for the moment in which I'm about to cross the line for security and I'm not allowed to come back and I hear my name, Bernal! And I turn around and my entire class is there, everyone. All those little kids put on their uniform, came to the airport to say goodbye to me, and then they went to school for the first time without me. So that was it. We left Guatemala for a more peaceful life in Portland, Oregon. We left our war-torn country. And... Um, It would be 15 years, 15 years before I would have the privilege or the right to travel back. And that day came, and 15 years later, when I traveled back to Guatemala, one of the first few things I wanted to do was go see my grandmother. I had a certain urgency about it. Um, so I got a hold of one of my tios, and I said, I want to go see grandma. He dropped me off at her door, and he left. as as if he knew I needed to see her alone. So I walk in the door, After my cousin let me in, I walk in the door, and the first thing that struck me is how small this house was. It was unbelievable to me that all those people could fit in there and that we had so many games and adventures. Uh, and then, of course, there was my grandmother sitting in her chair with her apron, her glasses, and her two braids, 98 years old, 
And I said to her, good afternoon, grandmother. And she looked up at me and says, good afternoon, mijo. I haven't seen you in a long time. And for a second, I thought to myself, do you recognize me? And then she said, well, you look just like your dad when he was younger. So I was taking her back, and she tells my cousin, hey, would you go down the hall and get the picture that's hanging on the wall? And she comes back, hands my grandmother the picture. My grandmother looks at it, looks at me, turns it over. That was a picture of my dad. So I went up to her, and I put my arms around her, and I sobbed. I cried. I was so moved that she recognized me. There was no doubt that she recognized me. I was very surprised. I mean, after all, it had been 15 years. She's 98 years old. And I have 60-plus cousins that I know of. Um, so, yeah, I was very surprised. I was also surprised to find out that lunch, Sunday lunch, was not a thing anymore. I mean, it happened infrequently. And at that point, sometimes when it happened, it was at somebody else's house. And the menu was different. And my tios, they all had too much to drink. And if there was Coke now, it was for anybody, kids, wives, grandkids, anybody could just help themselves. You know this feeling of waiting for something to happen for so long that when it actually happens, there's a very good chance you've built it up a certain way, such that disillusion is rapidly going to ensue, right? We do this to ourselves all of the time. My first few trips to Guatemala were certainly disappointing, but there was also some very good things. I got to see my schoolmates, my friend Max, my number one. He organized a gathering for all of us at his house, or really his mom's house, which is very common there, right? I think she was especially happy to see us all together at last as adults. She was walking around with trays of tequila shots, and she was making rum cocktails. Um, we had a great time. There must have been 20 of us. Some people invited their partners. Even our old English teacher showed up. We compared notes. We tried to catch up. I found out that Javier was a grandfather. <laughs> Jota had died of liver disease. El Gato, he bought a hotel and moved to some other town. Rita never married. Ana Luz did, and then she moved to some other country. We danced. Karaoke was loud. Max's mom had a few drinks, and we told dirty jokes in front of her for the first time. It was awesome. We had a great time. We got pretty drunk. Then I found, back, I found myself back in the States with this sort of newfound peace, and I attributed to this new wonderful privilege of if I, can go, if I want to go back, I can go back any time if I can afford it. It was really just a wonderful privilege to have. Now, the next time I went back to Guatemala, everything was a little less dramatic. My grandmother had died at 101 years old. Um, I had gotten married, and so this time I traveled with my wife and her dad. I saw more of my maternal side of the family. I didn't really call anyone on my dad's side of the family. And one thing I did for sure was call Max to see if he could put together another party for us, and he sure did. We had a wonderful time at his house. It was wonderful. It was just different, but it was still very glorious. Still, the whole experience of going back to Guatemala continued to be disappointing at times. You see that boy who placed that stuffed animal strategically right in front of the door? 
He also wanted to push the pause button on this movie. I wanted it all to be the same when I went back. I wanted time to be suspended. I longed for 15 years to go back to that time. Talk to anybody who has ever been displaced before, and they'll tell you. We long for things in a way that is different than just thinking of them fondly, just because time passed. We long for these things because time passed, and you had no choice but to get out of there. You had no choice but to flee. It's the element of lack of choice, right? There is something terribly unresolved about that. Imagine that you're digging in a grave, and you hope that you won't find bones, and you keep digging, and then you do. So my last visit to Guatemala was in 2017. This would be an entirely different trip. This time, my wife and I brought our two young sons, and also my parents joined us. I didn't really call my cousins. I really didn't visit much family. I didn't go visit my old house. In fact, we had sold the house, and it had been turned into a hardware store. And I have no idea if Benji is still up there awaiting my next return, or it won't be happening. Instead, this time, we went first to the hotel in Guatemala City and to Antigua, which is pretty common. And once there, I asked my wife if she would mind terribly if I went on an adventure on my own, a solo adventure. She allowed it. I was looking for some personal meeting and some answers related to my work, and, and I kept up a journal. After being gone for a few days, I called my wife to plan the next leg of our trip and our next adventure, and the plan was that we would be meeting in the Caribbean side of the country, a place called Rio Dulce. Well, the plan was that we would all meet there in a couple of days. She would leave with the kids and my parents the following day. But as the conversation went on, it became very clear that she thought I would also meet her the next day. And when she realized the mix-up, my very brave and accommodating wife began to cry. And she said, it's been really hard with the kids, even with your parents' help. And she also reminded me that we were all there to make memories together. And I said, look, this thing that you've allowed me to do is super important to me. I'm also in the highlands of Guatemala, in a total opposite place where you are, in the mountain region of the Cuchumatanes. And it's really very difficult for me to just find myself in the Caribbean tomorrow. I'm really sorry. And so we hung up. And at this point, I felt really bad. I reflected. Like I said, I'd gone there to find some answers. I wanted to find out specifically why families continued to send their minor children to the U.S. and what effect that was having in those local communities. Community is really dear to my heart. See, my, my bloodline, my ancestry is actually from that part of the country. But the truth is, I think I'd found satisfactory answers. So then I proceeded to call everyone involved, uh, hotel managers, private drivers, bus drivers, to see if there was any possibility that this could be done. And so the next morning, I woke up really early, and it was very, very cold. And I decided to embark on this adventure. It would take me five hours to get to a point where I could intercept their bus. And then together we would travel the following two hours all the way to the Caribbean. That is if there was no complications. And so for that reason, I decided not to tell her or anybody else anything. I also just wanted to surprise her. So I put on my hoodie and my pants 
in my hiking boots, and I got on the bus. I saw the sun come up, and I took out my journal, and I was on my way. Now, five hours later, there I was, now in a very hot and humid climate, in a tank top, my pants rolled up, and wearing flip-flops, drinking a papaya smoothie, and stretching my neck out every five minutes to see if I could see a bus coming up. And eventually I did. The bus came up. Before I pulled to a full stop, this lady came out with her luggage. And then I got on the bus. Way in the back, I saw my wife with my two kids crawling all over her. And a few rows in front of her, my parents. My dad saw me first. His jaw just dropped. And when my mom saw me, she actually screamed, Bernal! That's when my wife looked up. And when she saw me, I went straight for her, and I hugged her, and we cried. It was like we hadn't seen each other in months. That moment, when my family made me feel like the hero of the story, was the moment that I stopped longing for my memories. And I feel like the tension was resolved. This is from my journal. If I'm being honest, I needed to come here to find myself again. And this time, to also witness my sons feel this earth between their little toes, and to witness this air fill their lungs so that they too can feel complete. I needed this motherland to shower them with kisses, and I needed to come show them off to her and to say to her, look what we did. Look at these little angels who are also your sons. Do you see how happy I am? Do you see how much love there is? We would spend the next few days as family. Incidentally, Max and crew joined us in a corner of Guatemala that I had never been to. None of us had ever been to. We swam in the pool. We ate new foods. We played games. We caught fireflies at night. We laughed. We had found a new way to be together. Bernal has lived in Portland for 32 years now, where he served for many years as a social worker for unaccompanied immigrant youth. He now works for the nonprofit Endeavors as the associate director of the Family Reunification and Migrant Wellness Program. That's our show for today, but stay tuned. We'll be back soon with more storytellers live on stage with the next episode in our series. The Immigrant Story Live is a production of The Immigrant Story. This episode was produced by me, Deegan Larkin, with post-production by Greg Palmer. Original music was composed by Corey Larkin. Our executive producer is the always pioneering Sankar Raman. Original audio is from the 2019 Beaverton Welcoming Week and the 2020 Dreams Deferred live event. If you want to catch up on our past live events, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, at the Immigrant Story Live. This episode is made possible by a generous contribution by the Zidel Family Foundation. Mm-hmm.